to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour for this milestone podcast. This is podcast number 30. That's right, the number 30. Podcast number 30 is going to be fun. We have one of the most popular radio call-in guests. He was a clone on the nationally syndicated Jim Rome Show. He is a diehard Cleveland sports fan, and he happens to be a graduate of my alma mater, St. Edward High School. John Carliac, better known as John from C-Town, joins us on the podcast. Speaking of listeners, thank you so much for continuing to download and listen to my podcast. And remember to follow us on social media. Wait a minute. Why aren't you following us on social media? The Chris Williams Podcast Hour can be found on both IG and Twitter at The Chris Will Pod and on Facebook, The Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Today's podcast is brought to you from our sponsor, Yes Pallets. Yes Pallets, the pallet removal, waste removal, and recycling removal company that places risk mitigation, OSHA compliance, and customer-obsessed service first. They can upscale at a moment's notice and remove barriers to provide you with a safe and clean work environment. Podcast number 30. I once knew a guy who wore the number 30, and he could really tote that rock. Oh, the good old days. Anyway, enjoy the podcast with the man from my town and who has seen it all like the pirate looks at 40. Thank you for joining us. This is the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Mother, Mother Ocean, I've heard you call, wanted to sail upon your waters since I was three feet tall, you've seen it all, you've seen it all. Welcome back to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, and today I have one of the most popular radio calling guests from Cleveland, Ohio. For those of you that remember the Jim Rome show, Rome had popular guests called clones. And this young man was one of the best and most popular clones to call into the show. He always had a take and it didn't suck. He was wildly popular on the Jim Rome tour stops and he is also a St. Ed's grad. Please help me welcome to the Chris Williams Podcast Hour, the one and only, they call him John from C-Town, Mr. John Carliac. John, welcome to the podcast. Good evening, Chris. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Uh, not a problem. Not a problem. Now, John, again, welcome. Thank you for coming to share your, your most interesting story on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. Now, this should be easy, but this podcast is all about you and storytelling, So, as well as shameless plugs. So please feel free and comfortable to share and tell your story. Sure. Uh, born in uh, Lakewood, Ohio, even though I was uh, raised in Cleveland. Uh, as you alluded to, went to St. Ed's, class of 83. Played football, uh, not as well as you, but I played football. I was a defensive back. Went on to uh, Mother Miami of Ohio, the Harvard of the Midwest. Love that school. Um, graduated. 
Uh, do this as uh, quickly as I can. I'm, I'm starting to think how old I am. Um, I actually had a menial clerk job for the FBI. That's right, uh, the old FBI headquarters, 1988. Um, honest to God, I think my starting salary was around $13,000. I think it was a GS3, but I always wanted to work for the wow. feds. I transitioned on. I was a, an investigator for DEA, Drug Enforcement in Cleveland, for a very brief time. And then I was a special. Then I uh, I was lucky enough interviewed and I got hired. I was a special agent for now what is now NCIS for all those who watch TV, but it was actually NIS when I was there. I was a special agent for them out in Washington State, out in Bremerton, Washington, which is Puget Naval Ship Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, which is where the USS Nimitz is dry docked. And then I was also in Bangor, which is where the Trident sub bases are. Um, then I transitioned on uh, years later. I worked actually for it's, it's still in Cleveland. Uh, it's called uh, I don't know what it's called now, but at the time it's, it was called the uh, Mental Health Services. And I actually worked for a psychiatric crisis team. Uh, it's called it was called the Adult Mobile Crisis Team. Um, I answered the phones and went out and did uh, with the licensed social worker did. Uh, psychiatric evals on people out in, who are in mental health crisis. We also, obviously, like I thought, said, did hotline crisis phone services. I did that for 14, 15 years. Um, oh, wow. Great bunch of people. Like I said, they're still in operation. Um, it was a tough job just because I mostly volunteered for third shift for a lot of different reasons, which kind of, in a way, alludes to why I was able to call into Rome because everyone always wondered, like, how the heck do you call into a radio show that's on from noon to three? Actually, noon to four when I first started calling. But anyway, um, it's because I worked third shift. And I'd, you know, I'd come home, go to bed, catch a cat nap, and then turn on the radio and listen to Jim. So, you know, most normal people are, in the, are at their jobs in the middle of the day. You know, one, <laughs> two, three o'clock, they're working. Well, I mean, I was, you know, laying in bed with the, you know, phone. I could call in. So that's why it kind of ties into that. Anyway, uh, just okay. to wrap this up, so... Got burned out, uh, moved to New Hampshire in, in 2006, sales job, worked for a buddy of mine, and I'm um, still in sales, Fifth was it, uh, 15 years later. I live in uh, Hampton Beach, New Hampshire, three miles from the ocean. Um, I love New England. I mean, I always love Cleveland because there's a lot of Clevelanders out here, but it's funny, whenever somebody, you know, runs into you and they find out they're from Cleveland, they're usually really ignorant, and they'll make some stupid old joke you know, about the river burning or something, you kind of roll your eyes. and like, really, guys? That was like 50 years ago. <laughs> or if they've actually been to the town, they'll, they'll look you and they go, you know what, John? That's a great city. You know, I actually was there on business or, you know, we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or whatever. And I, I tell people the cost of living in Cleveland is fantastic. The people are great. It is, you know, the old cliche, the best location in the nation. So, I mean, even, and obviously Rome, you know, had three tour stops in Cleveland. He, he, he does. I, I don't know Jim Rome that well. I mean, obviously I've met him several times and been on his show hundreds of times. But, you know, Jimmy does really, I, I can pick up on it, he does love Cleveland. And, you know, he said it on stage. He said it on the air many times. It, it's always been a great jungle town. I, I know he's on some couple small stations now in Cleveland, I looked up the affiliate list, and I mean, obviously, at the time that I was calling, he was on KNR, um, and I know he's not on KNR anymore. But um, anyway, so I, I really haven't been a, a regular caller. I mean, I'm dating myself now. Uh, you know, it's been 20 years. I mean, 2001 is when I made the infamous when I retired, when 
I'll get into this in a, maybe somewhere down the road. Okay. When, when Travis Rogers, his producer, made a bunch of, I'm serious, made a bunch of despicable remarks about me on the air one day, and the next day I called up and said, that's it, I quit. Uh, I was just so infuriated, but, uh, you know, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But, you know, it's been 20, it's been 20 some years um, since I called, and I did call as recently as December, and the occasion was the Browns around the great role that they were. In fact, it was Pittsburgh week, and I called into Rome, and, you know, Rome, it's funny, Chris, it took me, I'm not kidding, it took me like five or six minutes to co- convince Brian Albers, uh, one of the show's producers that I was, and I know it sounds really arrogant, but it's like, you know, I'm, I, are you the John and C-Town? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know how you prove something when it's a non-visual medium. I'm like, you're talking to me on the phone. You either recognize my voice. He's like, well, when's the last, he literally asked me, when's the last time you called? I said, honest to God, I said, four years ago, I called the night of the seventh game of the Cubs-Indians World Series. Uh, to hopefully get the Indians some jungle Carmen. We all know how that turned out. But I said, you know, so it's really been four years. Anyway, you know, I called. I was giving the Browns some love. And as they are, you know, prone to do, Jimmy started, or not Jimmy, but one of the producers started playing the uh, infamous uh, Lunch with the Monkey tape, you know. But then Jimmy was very nice and went on for, like, I'd say four or five minutes telling the uh, new clones about me and that I was old school and that back in the day, you know, and John is one of the legends, and that John, you know, always had my back, and he, you know, went on about how I always defended Jimmy, you know, went after the infamous monkey or any, any station that wouldn't play him. It, it was really nice. It, it, was, it really was old school. It was a trip down memory lane because, like I said, I hadn't called in a long time, and it was really nice to hear that. So, like I said, there was a long gap in between, you know, when I was a regular because I did start calling in 98 was when I first started calling. Um, I don't want to get ahead of you. 99, I know, was the first smack-off I was actually invited or I asked to be in and was, was accepted. I was in four. So 98 was when I really, like, was when Rome first came on in, into Cleveland. And that's when I, I did. I got hooked. I got hooked instantly because I am a sports junkie. Um, and I just... Everything about the show I loved. I mean, if, if, if you are a clone, if you're listening to this, you probably are. I mean, you know, you probably love the show for the same reasons I do. I mean, Jimmy is a damn funny guy. Uh, he knows his sports. Don't always agree with him. But, you know, he's entertaining as hell. And at the end of the day, you've got to be entertaining. And, and Jimmy is. And then, of yeah. course, you've got yeah. the whole dynamics of the callers and the emailers. Um, and it just, it, it was a perfect recipe to be literally entertained because at the end of the day, Rome is an entertainer and I was entertained for, you know, four five, six years. And, you know, I, yes, did I become p- part of the show? Yeah. For a while, I, you know, I definitely was, um, and had a lot of fun and got a lot of great memories. Some of us, some of it famous, some of us, some of it infamous. But uh, like I said, I don't want to over-talk it, so I'll, I'll let you pick up and ask me anything you want. Oh, no, no, that's fine. That's, that's excellent. Great lead-in. So let me, let me go back a little bit and ask you about the uh, psychiatric crisis counselor. So what, what were your duties? I know you said you were answering the phone. So what exactly were your duties when you were doing that? Yeah, uh, Actually, it sounds kind of mundane, and, and I'll try not, honest to God, I'll try not to be sarcastic because when I think about this job in retrospect, there's a lot of people, and I get it, the layperson, oh, you work for Suicide Hotline, you know, huh? Chris, 
seriously, did I literally save a few people's lives? Yes, I did. But so did my coworkers. And what I mean that is like, I can still remember phone calls at three in the morning. There was a lady, well, I won't even give the town that she lived in. She had taken pills. And she literally, you know, she called, thank God she called in. And of course, it's Murphy's Law. You never see the caller ID because they always, it's always a blocked or a private number. Long story short, um, you know, she, she was having some personal issues, obviously. She told me that she ingested pills. I finally got her to give me her address. I, you know, got my supervisor uh, to wake up because they do 24-hour shifts. She called the local police department. I literally heard the police coming through the door as the phone dropped to the floor. I know that sounds really melodramatic. That's an honest-to-God true story. Wow. Did it happen every night? No. And actually, I did do a follow-up call a couple of days later to the hospital, and she did survive. So was I a part of her staying alive? Yes. But in all humility, that was my job. And, and I, have a lot of go- I had a lot of coworkers who did it a lot better than I did. But, you know, and, it's, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a, a company that's still running in Cleveland. My point is you mostly got a lot of people who just needed to vent, which is a human emotion. People just need to vent or they couldn't sleep. I would have to shut those people down and go, you do know you're calling a suicide hotline. Not, trying to, not being able to get to sleep is not a crisis. I know it sounds like it to you, but I really got to keep the phone lines free. And you would get, in other words, you'd get a lot of calls that really weren't appropriate, for lack of a better term, because you really, your job was to be there for that person who literally was, you know, imminently going to take their lives. And again, it, it didn't happen as often, thank God, it didn't happen as often as you think, but you were glad that you were there when it did, you know. And like I said, they, they do incredible work, and it was, a, it was a very – and I also did a lot of computer entry. All, all, the, all the phone calls had to be logged, so to answer your question, uh, you know, from 8 – I did four ten and a half hour shifts. So from 8.30 p.m. to 7 a.m. Monday through Thursday, I had to do the data entry, answer the phones. If I worked a day shift, I would go out with one of the social workers. It was mostly to have a male presence there, and plus they knew I was ex-law enforcement. So, you know, if we went out and talked to somebody who had some mental health issues, if, you know, God forbid, things got a little dicey, there was a male presence there, and plus I knew a lot of the policemen in the Cleveland area. So, um, like I said, it was a very rewarding job, but the hours took its toll just because of the night shift, third shift. So that really, when everyone says, well, why did you come out to New England? It wasn't because I didn't love Cleveland anymore. Just personally and professionally, I was burned out, and I just, I needed a fresh start. So when the opportunity, when a good friend of mine called me and said, hey, you know, i got a sales position. You want to come out? And he flew me out to uh, Portland, or uh, Portland, Maine, and I drove up and down the seacoast, up and down through New Hampshire and, and Mass, Massachusetts. Just fell in love with it. I mean, there's nothing like New, ha- uh, New England in the fall. Uh, I'm not a Red Sox fan. I, st- I still hate the Chowderheads. But, I mean, there is, you know, it's fun to watch a game at Fenway on TV. Uh, I've been to Fenway, you know, several times. You know, I hate the Patriots. I hate Brady. I hate Belichick. So, you know, a lot of love that Brady won the Super Bowl because the Chatterheads are, you know, pretty much ready to jump off the, you know, windowsill, which makes me, you know, schadenfreude, you know, join other people's pain. So that, that's beautiful. Um, so, you know, in other words, I retain my Cleveland, you know, my Clevelanderness. I mean, it's just, I'll, you know, I was dating a gal and she's like, oh, you're a Chatterhead now. I'm like, no, no, Julie. I will always be a Clevelander. You, you just, and anybody who grew up in Cleveland knows that. You're very loyal because our town did take a lot of crap. So no matter where you go, 
you know, you, your, your back arches up when anybody gives Cleveland any sort of crap because it's just like, no, you, then you don't know the town, you don't know the people. You just don't because it is a great town. My heart's been broken 18,000 different ways, you know, through sports. Um, yeah. I mean, the week before I flew out to become an agent for NIS was the freaking Jordan shot over Elo. I mean, the next Saturday, the, the next oh, Saturday I flew geez. out to start my career. I mean, that's how I left Cleveland, watching freaking Jordan, you know, uh, do Elo. I was at the Raider game in 1980, you know, when Brian Sight threw that freaking interception uh, to Ozzie Newsom. Oh. Well, he didn't throw it to Ozzie Newsom. He wanted to throw it to Newsom. Um, I was at the drive in 87 with Elway. Uh, I, you know, I, I've, I haven't seen it all, but I, I lived so much of it that, you know, you carry the pain. And obviously when the Cavs won it a few years ago, it was a bit of redemption, though. I'm still waiting for the Browns and the Indians, which in all honesty, Chris, would bring me the most joy. But that's a different subject for a different day. I, I tell people all the time. You know, the the Cavs won it. It was great. You know, when the Indians win it, it'll be great. But there will be nothing like Cleveland anywhere if the Browns ever win the Super Bowl. That place will go crazy. Oh, and and a- no one absolutely. can match that. <laughs> no one can match it. No. Absol- no, absolutely. In fact, I, I remember in 80, I was a kid I went to St. Ed's with. His father was a big-time banker, and if the Browns would have went to the Super Bowl because they would have been playing San Diego the next week, I don't think you were even born. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, 1980. Uh, you know, and uh, my buddy, Mr. Dovich, said, hey, I'm going to, you know, I, he goes, John, uh, you, you'll go with John. And my buddy was John, obviously. He goes, I'm going to put you on, a, you know, you're going to get on the company plane, and we're going to go to the Super Bowl. So, I mean, when the Browns lost to the Raiders, they screwed me out of going to the Super Bowl. And then in 87, I was in uh, my senior year in uh, Miami, Ohio. That was obviously on a Sunday, and we actually started school back the second semester on a Monday, and so I missed a, I'm a big whip. I missed a whole day of school because, you know, after the game, me and my buddy went out and just got hammered. And we, uh, you know, he went to Xavier, and I went to Miami, Ohio, and we just drove hungover, you know, down 71 southbound on that Monday, just trying not to just wanting to be alive. It's just that drive, it's still – you know, it's funny, Chris. I don't mean to divert. No, you did you not? I worked for a private investigative firm. Dennis, I'll, I'll use his name. He doesn't care. Dennis Drellishak. I worked for Dennis back in 1988. And he was a private security firm guy. And he was assigned to the referee crew for the Browns Bronco game. All right, so the game at the Cleveland Stadium where Elway did the drive and Carlos supposedly made the field goal. So I'm working for Dennis, uh, you know, fast forward, and we're doing a surveillance together, and he and I are sitting in the car at 2 in the morning, you know, and he's like, you know, we're shooting the breeze. And Dennis was only like a few years older. He was a young guy. He was like in his late 20s. But anyway, my point of the story is he goes, John, he goes, so he was telling me that he did this job. And he looked at me, and he said, John, he goes, God is my witness. He goes, I'm down on the field. In fact, Mark Bright was the name of the NFL. He was the name of the referee. I hated Mark Bright, but – Mark Wright was the head head referee of that game, and he was assigned the security detail to make sure the referees got off the field before and during and after the game. Dennis looked me in the eye and said, John, he goes, as God is my witness, I was standing behind the goalpost because, you know, waiting to escort the referees whenever the game got over. That field goal was not good. He goes, I will go to my grave. I remember, you know, my vantage point, it didn't look like it went through the, the, the post where I was sitting. I was upper deck. I, I remember just starting clapping, going, he missed it. And when they raised our hand that it was good, 
Well, there it was, you know, a year later, I'm talking to a guy who was on the field, and he, he and I said, Dennis, you, you know, you're BSing me. He said, John, that ball did not go through. I, I don't know. You know, you, you, if you're a conspiracy theory guy, there's your conspiracy. I, I don't, I just know that as God is my witness, I heard from Dennis, a guy who was on the field that said that ball did not go through. And I will go to my grave saying that ball did not go through and Carlos kicked it. But I don't know. You be the judge. Get the videotape out. All right. My last question about the psychiatric crisis, and and it's speaking of depression. So now with COVID, how difficult do you think that job would be? Uh, you know, it's funny you ask because I actually reached out to talk to one of my friends who's still on the job. And I, the burnout rate, as you can obviously assume, is, is incredible. Um, but uh, my friend Denise, um, I talked to her uh, a couple months ago. And I worked with Denise going all the way back to 1999. Um, and Denise is still there. God love her. So to answer your question, Chris, pretty much there's hardly any staff that's really there anymore in the building where I, where I, now I worked at the old Bishop Cosgrove building at East 18th and Superior. And then they bought a building that's behind that. But to answer your question with COVID, most of the counselors, the social workers are working out of their house just, you know, to, to not have the proximity between coworkers. So when a phone call comes in, you know, one or two people now, it's like a bare bone staff. They screen the call. And if it needs to go to a counselor, they get called on their cell phones, and the call gets patched through. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like everybody else. A lot of people are working from home. And I never thought that the crisis team, because we all had cubicles and we were almost sitting on top of each other, but I guess it's all been farmed out too. So now the counselors are taking phone calls from home, and I assume that when they have to go out to the community, they obviously would, you know, because they always go out in pairs for obvious reasons. You know, they probably just hook up with their coworker and go out and do the assessment now. So it's changed a little bit that, like I said, the work is being done from home instead of from downtown. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. So we'll fast forward. You had another interesting job, which I thought was really cool. So you were a scout for bowl games. So which bowl games did you rep, and what exactly did you do when you were doing that? Oh, God, you are tripped up memory lane. I scouted, that's right, because I, I saw you at a St. Ed's game. Uh, uh, the Citrus Bowl, which, oh, I know it's not the Citrus Bowl anymore. And uh, I'll be damned, Chris, I hate to embarrass myself. It's gone through so many different sponsorship changes. <laughs> it's the game I need. It, you know, it's, it's, held, it's, it's held in Orlando. It's the SEC versus the Big Ten. Um, uh, Steve Spurrier made the, the infamous sarcastic comment about the Citrus Bowl, I think, when I was – you know, working for him. Well, you can't spell citrus without a uh, T-E-N or whatever. So there's a slap against Tennessee. You know, the Tennessee always ended up being there. Um, but, no, so, so like I said, so uh, me, I, my buddy Kent Tagliata, Kent went to Florida State, and I refereed high school football uh, for eight years in Ohio. Um, actually did a game that LeBron James attended, but, again, I'm starting to digress. And then I've also, I also referee high school football in New Hampshire, but to get back to your Citrus Bowl thing. So Kent went to Florida State, and I'm refereeing with him, and he was a clone. Uh, we all tied this in together. So he and I are doing a game out in Berea one day, and we're shooting the breeze at halftime. And we're talking. He's like, hey, do you hear Rome today? da 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 And I'm like, hey, actually, I call into Rome. And he's like, this is in, my, in my, like my infancy. And he's like, no, 
I don't know if I can say this. No shit. He's like, yeah. I said, he goes, so I told him who I was. He's like, oh, you're him. So we start talking. He's like, he goes, well, he goes, I scoff for the citrus bowl. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And he goes, it's a non, it's a non-paying job, but you get free press passes. You go to games that they assign you. Your job is to wear the uh, infamous green blazer. You pass out literature. You sit in the press box, answer any questions that you know any media has about the Citrus Bowl. And, you know, a bunch of BS. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, it looks good this year for Penn State. You know, if you're in Happy Valley or whatever, you just feed them a line of crap because it is. At the end of the day, it's all PR. But I mean, it was a great job. And again, if you're a sports junkie, it's you know, you're, it's Shangri-La. It's you know, so I went to, you know, free. Like, had to pay your own way. I mean, it's. And again, at the time when I was making it at mental health services, I, you know, I. It wasn't paycheck to paycheck, but it pretty much was close to it. So, like, if I got a game at Michigan State, you know, gas money was on me. Staying at the Kellogg Center was on me. Yes, I got the free press press pass, and I yes, I did get to meet, uh, you know, the coaches. And I, in fact, when I was I went to an Ohio State OU game to start out the year back in '99, and oh my God, Chris! So uh, I'm out in the field because I'm a Buckeye fanatic. Even though I went to Miami of Ohio, I bleed scarlet and gray. And so I'm on the field just to be on the field. Hadn't been on the field of Ohio State since 1987, drunk with my buddies who did a field trip to OSU. And at 3 in the morning, we were throwing the football around on the 50-yard line until OSU security got us. But, so, you know, I wanted to make a return trip to being actually on the turf, so I was, and I stood underneath the uh, flag. As the flag went up, and I got chills up and down my spine. I mean, I'm serious now. And so I'm like, well, I'll go up to the press box to watch the first half. Well, so I go up to the, I, you know, get out of the elevator, and the guy asks me to hold it. And I hold it. Stuff you can't make up, Chris. And I, I, I hated this guy, and I said it on the air several times. But who gets on the elevator? Earl Bruce. Just Coach Bruce and me. And he gets on, and I'm like, uh, hey, Coach. He's like, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, uh, Coach, it's an honor to – and I, I did mean it, even though I said – you know, even though I didn't like him because, you know, he didn't have a winning record against Michigan. He did win his last year. After he, I think if everybody remembers, he beat Michigan after he had been fired. Uh, Tommy Tupin, the guys, rallied in 87 and beat Michigan in Michigan for him. So I, I literally meant this. I mean, you can say whatever you want about a guy's coaching ability. He still is the coach. You know, it's like you can – whatever your political party – you can hate the president and his beliefs, but once you meet the president, it's Mr. President because he is your president. He was an Ohio State coach, you know. So I was like, Coach Bruce, it's an honor to meet you. And he goes, well, thank you, son, you know. And I just kind of shot the breeze with him. I said, hey, Coach, you know, I'm so glad you beat Michigan your last year. And he goes, you and me both, you know. And it just was one of those moments you're kind of like frozen in time. And, you know, we went up whatever, how many stories, and then, the you know, elevator doors open, and I went to my seat, and he went his way. But I'm like, you know, how many how many jobs can you get where you get three minutes with an ex-Ohio State coach? It's, you know, a private audience. And then what was even greater to me was after the game, uh, I was on the field, and Cooper, who I did hate more than life itself and still do, but uh, when I was on the field with, you know, with Cooper and, the, and, the, and the, the team, and who did I meet but my lifelong idol, Archie Griffin. And I was like, and he was the assistant AD at the time. And I was like, Mr. Griffin, I said, I, because I, I, I was, I mean, Chris, I, I mean this, I was in awe. I mean, again, I'm, I'm so much older than you, but as we all know, Archie Griffin was the first two-time repeat Heisman Trophy winner. And as a kid, I worshipped, you know, Archie Griffin, Brian Bashnagel, Cornelius Green, quarterback. And there I am standing next to Archie Griffin. 
and I must have sounded like a two-year-old. You know, I was like, I wasn't stuttering. I wasn't that bad, but I was like, uh, Mr. Griffin. He's like, call me Archie. I'm like, Archie, it's just, it's an honor. And I, I got to shake his hand. Again, I know I sound like a schoolgirl, but I mean, that was Archie Griffin. And it was just such an honor. And so those are little things, you know, when you get to do a job like that, again, not paid, but, um, you know, it, it got to allow me to meet a lot of, you know, big-time coaches. Um, got to be on the field. Uh, I got to be on the field at a Notre Dame-USC game. Uh, I'll, I'll name drop now. Uh, I went to the Notre Dame-USC game in 99. Uh, hung out with Dan Patrick. Patrick had a press pass from USC because I know he's a California guy. Shooting the breeze with Dan Patrick. He was kind of a little standoffish, but he was nice enough. Um, Wayne Gretzky was, was there. I went up and got an autograph for my sister who I don't, you know, had a crush on Wayne. He, he was nice. Um, I was literally in the back end, end, of, end of the end zone when the Notre Dame fell on the uh, fumble into the end zone. At the start of the game in 99 was bright and beautiful. At the end of the game was a monsoon. It was the greatest comeback in Notre Dame history uh, at Notre Dame when they beat uh, USC 25-24. to And I was literally standing in the corner of the end zone when they fell on the fumble. I mean, those are memories that, obviously, as you can tell, it was back in 99. They're, they're like yesterday to me. And if you're a sports junkie, any guy I think could appreciate that, that I was there when it happened, you know, and I was. That's huge. If I'm talking That's your ear huge. off. I apologize. No, no, this is great. I, I am. I'm not stopping you. Like I said, this is all about your stories. So the more stories you share, the better the podcast is. So feel free to. <laughs> Don't talk. worry. I love it. I love it. I love it. So let let me ask you this, because you are an avid Cleveland sports fan, and you you know you talked about some of the memories. So what has been your biggest thrill, and what's been your biggest disappointment? As a Cleveland sports fan, I think my biggest disappointment because it kind of encapsulates both the Browns and, and the Tribe. It, it just—I've said this on the air. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of my my buddy Chuck Booms, who used to have a nationally syndicated show, Kylie and Booms. I say it to Chuck all the time. He's a Clevelander. It's it's the lack of a, the killer instinct that all the Cleveland sports teams have had in my life, and, and you see it repeatedly that when you have an opportunity to win, you win. You don't, you don't take your foot off the pedal. Best example this year was, you know, the Cleveland-Tennessee Titan game. That was the best first half I've ever witnessed in my 56 years on this, on this earth. I mean, you know, when they, when they lit up the scoreboard against Tennessee, I think it was the most points scored in, the, in one half of the Browns' history. And then what did they do in the second half? I mean, I know Stefanski seems like he knows what the hell he's doing. In that game, he didn't because the second half was an abomination. It, it, it epitomizes the, the, what's wrong with Cleveland. I always tell everybody, in the 1997, when we lost to the Marlins, you got to remember, Chris, we lost to the Florida Marlins. Anybody who witnessed that series like I did, you do know that Marlins come from Florida, right? And yet one of the games that I was at in Cleveland was in snow. Only in Cleveland can you lose to a Florida team when one of the baseball games is played in snow. I mean, you would think it's hands down your series to lose, and yet we lost. I tell everybody I watched that, that the game that we the seventh game from the Tam O'Shanner, a great par in Lakewood, and I remember in the ninth inning, people forget. You know, I know Charles Nagy gave up the the game winning hit, 
and I won't even get into Hargrove. Uh, but, you know, Sandy Alomar did not slide into home plate in the ninth inning. He was tagged out. He went in standing up. Tagged out, running. He slides. Yep. That's another run. And then Craig Council's hit down the right field line doesn't, you know, tie the game. It's things like that that, to answer your question, it's the so close but no cigar. You know, the 98, you know, uh, Marty Schottenheimer, God rest his soul, you know, just died a few weeks ago. Going to the prevent defense when we literally had the Broncos on the two-yard line and had to go 98 yards, he takes Chip Banks out of the game, and they play that GD prevent defense, which prevented us from winning. It's when, when you're so close. You know, Trivisano, I know, can be kind of bombastic. I met uh, Trivisano a couple times because I was a regular on uh, Bruce Drennan's show on TAM when I was a Citrus Bowl scout. I was kind of like his college guy. And I remember, you know, telling Trivis, you know, telling Trivisano, I said, "Hey, Trivisano, the best comment I ever heard you make was, you know, after the '97 series loss, was it makes it really bad because you never know when you're going to get back again. Nothing's guaranteed with injuries, with the fickle finger of fate. So, in other words, when the tribe was in the '97 series after having just been in the '95 and getting totally outplayed by the Braves, it's like, well, you know, you can't say we'll get him again next year." Because there is no guarantee of next year. And let's face it, Chris, I mean, facts are facts. That was 97. It took us, what, 19 years to get back. It wasn't until 2016 until yep. we got back to the World Jeez. Series. And then we're, what, up three games to one and we still lose it? You know, Frank Cohn is a nice guy, and I'm not out there just bad. I don't know the man, never met him. I'm sorry, Chris. I, I got a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, I don't know if that's the right word. I'm sorry. I, I laid at the foot of Terry Francona. I know he doesn't pitch. I know he doesn't bat. I know he doesn't field. You had a team that was going home that needed to win one out of two games, and you didn't get it done. I, I'm sorry. That, that is the proverbial knife in my back and twisted a few thousand times. It's just, it's only in Cleveland. It's the phrase, it, it can only happen like the Believe Land thing that was on ESPN. You know, the guy, you know, I don't really, I didn't know the guy who, you know, him and his son who, who did the thing. But he kind of, I thought, did a relatively good job. Only in Cleveland. You, you can't make this stuff up. You know, I mean, the fumble. I, I remember watching that game. Judge Johnny Russo, my classmate, class of uh, 83. I know you know Judge <laughs> Russo. I was at Johnny Russo's house, his parents' house in 88 when Ernest Biner fumbled the ball. Big spaghetti dinner Mrs. Russo had. I still remember, you know, uh, Biner fumbling on the ball, just looking at Johnny like we all left his house like in silence. It's like, what the, f you know, you just, you can't make this stuff up. So to answer your question, it's just been the whole history of the pain that it hasn't been the Indians or the Browns. My greatest joy is that we're resilient, you know, that I still, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get too nostalgic. It's the fact that I still, you know, like I bleed scarlet and gray for Ohio State. I bleed every Cleveland sports team. It, it'll never leave me. In other words, the bitterness, like bitterness in life, can make people turn into sour and they just sort of kind of give up and just go through the motions. Being a Cleveland sports fan, I don't think being over, overly dramatic on, to answer your question is I've never given up my love for Cleveland sports. As much of the time as anybody who has been a Cleveland sports fan has gotten kicked in the nuts, we still love – just for some, it's like a moth to a flame. We just well, – we're not giving up till we get – and hold up the trophy. So right. I still love my Browns. I still love my Indians. And even though they have broken me in so many different ways, I still, every year, 
put me in, coach. Um, you know, I'm in. But let's see. Maybe this is the year. Because I don't want to go to my grave without that Super Bowl ring or that World Series uh-huh. trophy. Because I would go back to Cleveland for that parade because, I mean, I think you would attest to this, Chris. It would put anything else to shame. It would. And I, and I went back to uh, I went back to Cleveland for the Cavs parade, and I it was mm-hmm. <laughs> nothing like it. The best times I've ever had in Cleveland were during that mm-hmm. that game seven and that that parade. So, yep, yep I lost I the job it. over that. <laughs> Good for you. Good stuff. I lived in vicariously. I couldn't come back, but I mean, to be blunt. Yes, I was very happy, very happy for the Cavaliers. Well, you know, happy for Cleveland. The NBA, it's just, this is just me. Anybody else can put the Cavs first. For me, it goes in this order. Sorry, uh, the Browns, the Indians, and the Cavs. It's just, it's just me, you know, because, you know, I mean, my, definitely my greatest joys were being down at the old Cleveland Stadium for the Browns games. And, and then, you know, the Indians, are, I mean, it's a close second. I mean, it's... You know, they're, they're almost joined at the hip. But, I mean, I, I think a Super Bowl, I don't even know what I, – I couldn't even imagine it. And I hope one day that they do. Hope, hope it happens, too. Hope it happens, too. We all do. All right. We can only hope. Yes. <laughs> That's it. All right. You ready to discuss the juicy stuff? So, like you said, you led into this. In 98, you make your first call into the Jim Rome show. And you were an instant hit. So talk about that call because that changed your life. So talk about that call and how everything just played out after that. Yeah, I was I was living in Lakewood at the time. And, and again, I, to, to your point, I, I'm pretty sure I kind of remember the remnants of the very first phone call. And I, it had, I think it had something to do with, with Mike Hargrove. I, I, want, yeah, I definitely was 98. I, I can't pinpoint the month. And I just, you know, hit redial, hit redial, hit redial. Finally got through. You know, they asked me, well, what do you want to talk about? I'd never done this in my life. Uh, Da-da-da-da-da. Put me on hold. You know, you hear the infamous, and it's like, John in Cleveland, or John in C, whatever the hell he said. And, I, you know, just have a take and don't suck. You know, I was so damn nervous. And and truth be told, every time I called, I would get get stage fright. I mean, maybe people are – I really would, because you, you try not to think about it. It's like, I don't know, three, four million people are going to listen. Um, it, it never mattered. And it just seemed like when I heard that infamous, we go to John and C-Town, and there's always that tape delay. You just kind of like go. And you're like, I hope I don't flub anything. I hope I don't sound like an idiot. I hope I don't, you know, have to launch myself. Just boom, 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 and get out. Um, no, I never wrote out my takes. I will admit that I would write bullet points. I mean, when you're talking to three, four, five million people, I didn't want to lose. I mean, I kind of would, you know, rehearse it in a way, and I would just, like, have a bullet point. Like, you know, one, two words. I would just know what my next subject was. It would just keep me on track because it, it can be rather unnerving to talk to that many people, and especially the follow-ups if you do screw up, especially once you become a known caller. If you flame out or have a flub call or Jimmy runs you, you know, you're just going to get it from the emailers. And it's, you know, it. It's all fun, but you know it's you're human. No one wants to sit there and just get listen to themselves just get bitch slapped, you know, for 15 minutes for four million people. But uh, so to go back to your question, so you know, 98, I, I had my first call. It went well. I think I believe he rack rack him. 
You know, you kind of get a visceral thrill. Oh, right, he racked me, Jesus. So I'm like, you know, I don't know how often I called. Um, everyone always asked me about the war furball thing, and, and it, it was a story. I remember uh, his, uh, one of the guys on the show, one of the phone screen, my mind's blanking out, um, uh, he, the phone screen guy, he, he's like, hey, John, he goes, you know, uh, uh, how do you war furball? Even Jimmy wants it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, Jimmy, this is a true story. Jimmy told a story in 98 about his wife and him had two cats. And the one cat got a furball. I'm not kidding. This is Rome telling the story. And he goes, so the one cat couldn't eat because he, he couldn't swallow anything because of the furball. So the other cat kept eating and got fat. And he's like, clones, you know, the fat cat was looking at the skinny cat. I thought he was going to have him for lunch one day. You know, until finally my wife got the other cat to, like, cough up a furball. And it saved his life, clones. You know, it was nip and tuck. You know, and I'm just, like, driving in my car laughing my ass i'm just like this guy's the funniest you know so like my next call i just said you know war seaton war furball i'm always like and everybody's got to remember that story because in my mind it was the funniest damn thing i'd ever heard that really was the genesis and really the war furball that was it that really was it um and then like i said just kept calling uh, 99 was the first i asked to be in the smack off um he accepted there was another guy, Dan, in Seatown. So there was two guys from Cleveland in the 99 smack-off. Um, and then 2000 was infamously a year, uh, a month before he came to Cleveland at Blossom Music Center. Obviously, the first tour stop was in 98 at the Convo Center. Um, I had a nosebleed seat. I mean, I was, I was known, you know, at the time. Duffy was starting to be known. In fact, I was like, my, I was like the last call on Friday welcoming Jimmy, we're going to go off to Hopkins and meet you, you know, uh, da da He's like, John, man, you know, you're my man. Look forward to seeing you. And I actually did get to meet him um, after the show. You know, I stood in line like everybody else. And um, I, I'll never forget, I said, hey, John, I'm, I mean, John. I said, hey, Jim, I'm John in Seatown. And he, like, he goes, I was wondering if you were going to show up. And he shook my hand, and actually I met his wife, Janet, out in the concourse, and, concourse, and he was very nice to me. He signed, you know, an autograph. And then obviously in 2000, the Blossom Music Center where, you know, me, Silk, and a couple other guys got invited on stage. I remember getting a phone call from Travis Rogers, who's a different story entirely, but I remember getting a phone call from Travis about a few weeks out, and he's like, hey, John, you know, uh, Jimmy wants some clones on stage. It's going to get filmed by Fox, you know, so we'd like you to be on stage, da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like, what else are you going to say? But, yeah, I'm in, you know. So that was great. I mean, that was one of that was one of the nicest days. I mean, Blossom Music Center rocked. It was I don't know fourteen, fifteen thousand people. Um, Aaron in Ottawa was a beautiful young lady from Ottawa. Uh, she somehow got my number. So her and her uh, husband or boyfriend came in. I was like their tour guide, Trapper. I picked up the late great Trapper at Hopkins. I picked up Dean uh, from SoCal. Uh, like I said, Silk showed up. Uh, you know, Trapper and I took him down to the flats that Friday night, um, drove out to Blossom Music Center. I remember Trapper was in a, honest to God, it was like 95 degrees that day at a tour. It was September 20th, I think, in 2000. And Trapper's in a freaking tuxedo. And I'm like, what? The f-? You know, I'm in a pair of khaki shorts and, you know, and a ball cap. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I, I kid you not, Chris, we had, I, I figured I, the pictures on my mantle over here. There was... K&R needed sponsors. One of the sponsors was, how do I say this? Um, ladies of Entertainment of a discretionary 
venue. And they were out advertising their wares. I I got the picture. I sent it to you. There's a picture of me and Trapper amongst these beautiful ladies in spandex pants and, and rolled up T-shirts. Um, I, you can't make this stuff up. I remember meeting Janet Rome again, and she was so nice. She really is. She's a gracious lady. Uh, I met her in Houston a few months later. I remember going up to her just, just the way I was raised. I was like, hey, Mrs. Rome, and it did sound kind of stupid. She's like, oh, please call me Janet. Just a quintessential lady. Just love talking to her. Very nice. I remember Steve Ligurski, the infamous monkey, who actually you know was the monkey, uh, the K&R director. And I remember him yes. coming up to me and corralling me and Bobby in Brooklyn and, and Silk and everybody's like, guys, you're going on stage with Rome. You got to promise. He was. He was almost in tears. You got to promise me. You won't be drunk. You're not going to embarrass us in Cleveland, right? Guys, keep it in. You know, just keep it together before you go on stage. Don't don't go out there drunk and embarrass me and the city. I'm like, Steve, we got this. We're good, you know. So I really did. I made it purposeful. I mean, it's so damn hot out. I really didn't feel like drinking all that much anyway. But, you know, we really did keep it together. I mean, Bobby actually did end up getting toasted and made a complete ass of himself on stage, uh, which is the truth. Um, <laughs> me, Silk, didn't. Um, it was nice. It, it was a great experience to be on stage because, obviously, I grew up going to Blossom Music Center, you know, seeing Buffett, like, I don't know, five, six times, Eric Clampton, uh, Huey Lewis. And there I was literally on the stage that I watched those performers, you know, and Jimmy was very nice to me when, you know, he introduced me and, you know, so John, you know, you got my back. Why is that? You know, and I just, you know, I don't know, Jim, cause you're Van Smack, you know, we love you and you love Seatown. And, you know, I remember looking out at the camera and I, I'm looking at 14,000 people. And I just said, Hey, Portland, Sacktown, guess what? Scoreboard, Seatown, you know, and a place yeah. went nuts. I mean, how many people get to do that? I, you know, it's just, it was it was an honor. It was it was uh, it was a thrill. In fact, uh, they had all these female escorts, not the girls that I mentioned, but K and R had you know. So when the clones were brought on stage to talk to Jimmy, we each had a girl escort us on the arm. And I'll never forget the phrase from Rome. He goes, "Clones with women. It doesn't happen often." You know, I just, you had a laugh. It's like because I remember uh, I think it was Travis. Now. When you get on stage with Jim, you got to tell him who you are, because remember, it's radio. He doesn't know what the hell you look like. And I'm like, fair point, Travis. You're right. As often as I talk to Jimmy, I've never met the guy. So he doesn't know who the hell I am. It's stuff like that that kind of blows your mind when you look back on it. But it's like, it's a radio show. No one really knows what anybody looks like. So, in fact, I remember somebody came up to me in Trapper before the show, because it was a whole all-day event. And some young man, I mean, I was flattered beyond belief. He's like, can I have your autograph? Uh, and I, I did a double take and Trapper was, you know, it was very, we, he's like, Trapper's like, sure. You know? And I, and I signed it. I mean, what are you going to say? No, but I'm just like, I, I call it a radio show. I mean, really? But it, it was flat. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being arrogant. It just, it kind of struck you. Like there are people that, you know, did kind of view you as a celebrity and it's just like, I don't know. I just call into a show. I have a take. Don't suck. Um, and that's why it took such a nasty turn with Travis Rogers when he said what he said about me on the air and everything. And anyway, you know, but even going down to Houston for the tour stop a couple months later, Chris, at Enron Field, um, there was a, a, a get-together from the radio station the night before in downtown Houston. And it just, the, the people could not be more gracious in Texas. I mean, when they say Texas hospitality, they are. I mean, I remember, I'll never forget, I have a picture somewhere in my in my. Uh, photo album 
this big son of a gun had to be 6'5", you know, 280, puts his arm around me at the bar and goes, legends don't buy drinks, John. Because we were all introduced by the radio station. That's how he knew me, in case anyone's wondering. So, I mean, I drank the whole night for free. I honestly got that's why I think I think I told you the story the other night when the when the elevator opened up on the bottom floor of the Sheraton I literally fell into the lobby I mean I was Blonzo <laughs> but I mean it, but there's stories that I remember there was a mom I have a photo of her there was a mom that came up to me with like her three-year-old at the at the at the reception you know and she's like you're John I'm like I saw you get introduced you know when I'm watching my kid during the day I listen to Jim Rome and I love your client I was like I'm like that's, I mean, what, what can you say? That's great. And she's like, can I have a, you know, a picture of you? Sure. You know, it, 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 <laughs> nice. it's not about me. It's about how many people listen to Rome. And you kind of like, all you want to do is have a sports take, have people hopefully laugh. If they don't, well, it's, it's all right. It's a radio show. But, you know, from somebody, I, I live in Cleveland, and there's some lady in Houston telling me that, you know, she stops with her, her, her you know, her home or housework, because I'm on the phone. And, you know, I had uh, Aaron in Ottawa told me there's these five guys that work where she works at. They all work in a factory. And it's not to blow my own horn. It's just to simply say how humbling it was. She's like, John, she goes, these guys wanted me to tell you, you know, they work in the factory, out in the warehouse, and every time they hear John and C-Town, they stop what they're doing, and they listen to your call. I mean, I'm like, really? They're like, yeah. I'm like, well, I don't care. If someone wants to call me arrogant for bringing these stories up, I would simply say, who in, you're less than human. If, if guys you've never met in your entire life and never will, stop what they're doing for a livelihood because your phone call comes up on a rum show. I mean, I, I got the biggest – I went to bed that night when Aaron told me that story. I went to bed smiling going, I, that's a feather in anybody's cap. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's so damn nice. It really is. It, it was – Rome reaches. I know. I don't know how many people Jimmy reach, reaches now. He, he's not on in the Boston market anymore. So people ask me, why don't you call? He's on a very low watt station in New Hampshire and a bunch of stations in Maine. And I just, it's hard to get. And it, obviously, it's hard to call up and, and opine on something if you don't know what the topics are. You know, obviously, if you're listening <laughs> right. at home and you know what he's talking about, you can get an idea. Um, so it's hard. But uh, like I said. I have 98% great memories. I have, you know, 2% crummy memories. I'll take the 98% any day of the week. Okay. All right. That adds, <laughs> you're a celebrity. I mean, how, how else do you say it? You know, you, you tell the story about the, the mom with the three-year-old kid. You know, she stops her day to listen to you. You These five guys in a factory, that, that's, that's, that's enormous. So and you should be proud because, like you said, you you're looking at it as you're just calling into a radio show, just making a take. Well, think about the average athlete. They're thinking they're just going, you know, to practice, or they go to a game and they what they've been practicing all their life. They just want to make a play. There's no difference. There really is no difference. Well, the the pay maybe, but you're entertaining <laughs> yeah. people, and and that's that's what it's all about. Bringing joy yeah, into just, somebody's life. It, to, to your point, Chris, I didn't mean to interrupt you. To your point, because it I'm thinking of frequently asked questions over the years. No, we never had a special phone number. You know, it's, it's a one eight hundred six three six eight six eight six. I don't care if you're Silk, me, uh, Terrence and Sierra Madre. 
you know, Jeff and Richmond, we all had to hit the, re, you know, a redial button. We were never given a special hotline number. And I'm sure that came from Rome, you know. They're clones. you got to hit the redial button. We never made a penny off of it, you know, like when, you know, like I told you, I went down to Houston. Again, I paid my own airfare. I, you know, the Jim Rome show or Clear Channel never put me up in a hotel room. Everything was out of my own pocket. You know, there was always a fine distinction. There's Jim Rome, the host, and you're a clone. You might be a famous clone. But you're still a clone, and I and I and I don't, I don't begrudge that at all. It's like I mean, I'll just you know, it is what it is. I I, I call, you know, call into a radio show. Um, the thing I you know, one of the things I, I'll never forget it was the third tour stop when Rome came to Cleveland, and uh, Michael Luzak, who is a who is a piece of work and actually an absolute jackass, and he was the monkey at K and R, and he's a complete idiot. He tried to get. In fact, he. In fact, he cut off my, my second call to KNR because I told him on the air because uh, I heard this from a secret source at KNR. So when I called into Rome, because I really wasn't calling into Rome a lot, and this was in 2003. I think I told you I really stopped calling in 01 for the most part. Anyway, I called into Rome and got through, and I said, "Hey," uh, and this is an honest to God true story because I I heard it from somebody who worked at KNR that. Uh, so I'm on the air with Rome, and I said, hey, uh, Jimmy, I know you're coming to Cleveland, and Michael Luzak, or Michael Loser, actually. Um, I understand that he was on a conference call with your people, and when they said, so you're excited about Van Smack coming to Cleveland, and they're like, who's Van Smack? And they're like, uh, that's a nickname for Jim. The guy didn't know. And I believe that. I believe that story. So I went off on the guy. Well, it was later brought to me, so then I called Rome like two weeks later just to give him an update, and they dropped my call. So, like, Jim goes, well, go to John and C-Town. I guess five seconds into the call, the call got dropped. And all, all the, everybody wow. heard was silence. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, Mike, you know, you're that petty, really? And I did hear that he was, he was incensed. He was, you know, because I did. I made him look like a fool in front of four million people. And he, he was. He's a complete idiot. Um, so, I mean, at that story, I, I actually kind of really enjoyed. I do remember, though, being at the third, you know, at the uh, – at the, uh, Convo Center again. No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was the Convo Center, uh, the third one, 03. And it kind of mirrors what's going on today with all the vitriol. I don't care what your politics are. We're not going to get into that, whether you're Democrat, Republican, but just there's no sense of humor. So I'm hanging out with a bunch of guys, a bunch of clones from, from Detroit. And, you know, we're shooting the breeze outside, and we're, you know, we're, like I said, shooting the breeze. And at some point, you know, they go, where are you from? I'm from Cleveland. Oh, what's your name, John? And the guy laughs at you're not John. I'm like, well, actually, I am. And then we're giving high fives. They're like five African-American guys, man, and they're giving me high fives. Shit, man, John, you from Cleveland. Shit, no, you can't. I'm like, yeah, I am. You know, so we're talking. We're hanging out. You want to hang with us? I'm like, I'll hang with you guys. So me and my buddies, we go hang with them. So the point of my story, Chris, it's really, it's, it's, it's sad. So Jimmy, I didn't even know if Jimmy was going to mention me because it had been a long time. But it, somewhere in the middle of the tour stop, Jimmy goes, and John and C-Town, my man, you know, he brought me to... Everyone always says, you know, because of him, I came to the Blossom Music Center. He, he, he was gracious and talked about me for three or four minutes. Wow. And all the guys that are standing there around me are like, hey, it's him. It's, there's John. They're pointing at me. And I'm just like, thanks, guys. And, you know, there's cat calls and people clapping. And I turn around. And Chris, God is my witness. I turn around two rows behind me. There's this kid, like in his mid to late 20s. And he's staring at me. And he has a look of hate. I mean, he is stared at me like he wants to come at me. And I won't even repeat what he said. He's pointing at me like, John, da-da-da-da-da. 
And I just kind of looked at him and said, uh, scoreboard? And I turn around, and my buddy's like, he goes, he giving you problems? I'm like, no, I think we're good. If he comes over, we'll take care of it. I just wanted to go up to the kid and go, obviously you hate me, okay? And that's, but you really, the look in your eyes, you hate me. Why is that? You don't like my phone calls? Okay. My takes suck. I get it. I'm not perfect. But I mean, do you realize that you actually have vitriol for a guy who calls a radio show? If you could do better, nameless clone who has a look of hate towards another human being, you're pathetic. I mean, again, you can do better. And I, I really, I, I use a wrong, you know, uh, phrase. Scoreboard. You, you get into four smackoffs. You know, you get the huge call a day. I don't know how many times. You get to be on a first name basis with Jimmy. You know, if I suck and I'm so bad, then have at it, buddy. The phone one eight hundred six three six eight six eight six. You call in and you trump me. Or if you don't want to call in, can you realize it's a radio show? I mean, Jeff and Richmond used to irritate the living bejabbers out of me. Trapper's calls. I hate it. I could tell you the story about the infamous John and Trapper tandem phone call. But, you know, but I would always check myself and go, these are phone calls. I don't have to like their call. I don't know these people. You know, I don't. We're calling a radio show. Jimmy always gave out the greatest compliment, in my humble estimation, to Silk. Because he'd always say about Silk, Silk gets it. And I would always say that to Silk. What, I, in my humble estimation, again, what, what did Jimmy mean? Silk got it. Because Silk's old school. He goes way, way, way back with Jimmy. And Silk always knows at the end of the day, it's a radio show. I call in. Hopefully I have a take. Maybe I try to be funny. Maybe I'm just giving straight sports takes. Maybe Jimmy likes my call. Maybe he doesn't. It's entertainment. Guys, don't take it too seriously. You know, the reason I took Travis Rogers' comment seriously was it wasn't about my phone calls. He literally said, I make his skin crawl. That was an ad hominem attack. I'd explain to Travis what that means. It's Latin for to the man. It was a personal attack on me. It was all about a bunch of scurrilous rumors about my supposed uh, behavior at the H-Town tour stop, which well, I won't me, dignify. Let me stop you for a second. I, I, let me stop you, stop you for a second. So for those that didn't or aren't familiar with that story, so what happened yeah. with Trapper? How did, that, how did it even come about? Well, something happened when I was out doing the tandem phone call with Trapper. And because Trapper, I'm, I'm not being overly dramatic, but, you know, Trapper obviously has passed. And there was, a, there was some allegations and accusations. It was, I went out there to fly. I flew. The reason I went out there was Trapper called me up and said, hey, Joe Walsh is appearing in Dana Point. You know, I know you're an Eagles fan. You want to go see him? I got tickets. I'm like, I'm in. And then probably over a few too many adult beverages, we came up with the asinine idea to do a tandem phone call. And I remember, you know, uh, going, this isn't probably the smartest idea, but at the point, I was kind of like, I was almost, it was kind of like overkill because it was after the Cleveland tour stop. And I was always kind of getting burned out because he was like, you know, every day, you know, because of me, you know, da 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 you know, the running joke, because of me, you know, like because of me, uh, we, we, we discovered America, John and Plymouth Rock. You know, I just, it was just incessant. I was kind of like, you know, guys, it's like the jokes are funny, but even I'm kind of getting burned. You know, maybe I've kind of like, I, I'll do the proverbial, you know, jump the, you know, jump the shark. I was kind of like, maybe John and Seaton has jumped the shark. And I just need to pull back because it's like, you know, after this, you know, I got so much publicity and so much airtime, both good and bad, you know, 
clones coming after me. Even I was kind of, you know, burned out. So I really hadn't called a lot. So to answer your question, so Trapper invites me, we go out to, and I go out to the Joe Walsh uh, concert. It was a wild weekend. Um, I just, I, I can't, Chris. I'm not going to say what actually happened. I just won't. Um, it, it, nothing illegal. I, I can tell you and your, anybody who's listening to the podcast, nothing illegal. Um, tawdry, yeah, uh, but nothing illegal, and it's false. But that's the assumption that Trapper believed when he called me up and said, did this and this happen? And I said, no, it did not. That's about as far as I can take it. Well, these rumors got back to Travis Rogers, Jimmy's producer. So it was the best of Rome one Monday holiday. I don't know if it was president. It was some, sometime in February. So what was it, President's Day or whatever? So Travis, I'm listening to the show, obviously. And Travis goes, you know, John and C-Town. That dude makes my skin crawl. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm stunned. I'm like, what the f- I mean, because it, it was it was person. It had nothing like his takes didn't suck. I don't like John's phone calls. He was talking about me as a person. So I called up Rome. I think it was the next day, and I, I it was right right at the end of the show. It was like five minutes ago on the show when I got through. I said, "Hey, Jimmy," and I, I told him what I heard. I said, "Jimmy, you know what? This isn't fun anymore." I said, "You know what, Travis Rogers? You don't know what the hell you're talking about." I said, "I don't. I called, and I all I do want to do is have a take and don't suck." You personally insulted me. You don't know my resume. I, I, I believe you probably don't know my last name. Well, you probably do, but you don't know me. I said, so you know what? I'm drawing a line. I'm out. That's it. Quit. Bye. And it was kind of like a stunned silence. Jimmy's like, well, you know, what the hell? Um, this is a true story. Five minutes later, my phone rings in my apartment. Travis Rogers. Hey, John. Tra- this is what really pisses me off about him. He's so disingenuous. Hey, John. Travis Rogers. Yeah, Travis. Hey, I think you got a hold of some bad information. Uh, oh, really? Well, what bad information is that, Travis? Well, about what I said. I said, no, 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 Travis. I listened. This isn't third hand. It's not like a bunch of buddies called me up and told me. I listened. I heard what you said. It was personal. And, well, you know, and he went out and I said, hey, Travis, what's just stop it right now? I said, I know the reason you're, you're calling me. The reason you're, the reason you're calling me isn't because you feel bad. I have a feeling that your boss we all know who that is, told you to call. Because I don't think Jimmy wants me to quit the show. And it's not to give myself an overinflated sense of self-importance, but I am kind of a big, you know, famous clone. And to drop off, I'm sure it wasn't what he expected. And the reason that I had to do it, I'm sure he didn't appreciate. Because he really did insult me. I, I'm trying to remember to the best of my ability, Chris. And, and, you know, I didn't slam the phone down, but it, it was just, he wasn't sincere. It was a bunch of BS. He called because I know that Rome made him call me. So how sincere can that be when someone's twisting your arm to make an apology? And um, as the story goes, or obviously then I got, you know, Scene Magazine called me. There was the article, Tears of a Clone. The guy interviewed me because I quit the Rome show. And then lo and behold, I'd already bought tickets to the Phoenix tour stop because my cousin Brian lived out in Phoenix, so I went anyway. And then he ended up, my, he, me and my cousin Brian are driving around the day after the tour stop. And it's like, oh, sh- hell, call. You know, hey, Brian, you know, hit, hit the speed dial. And I know the writer, I, and I get it, the writer of the article, I think, felt burned, that he wrote this whole article about John and Seaton quit the Jim Rome show, what's the story? Travis really wouldn't talk about it. Rome wouldn't be interviewed. And then, you know, two weeks later, I called the show. So obviously I really didn't quit. 
So the slant on the story really didn't put me in a great light. I get it. I, I, I totally do. I get why the writer felt burned. If I was him, I would have been pissed off at me too. Because the whole scene magazine article was supposed to be that I quit the show. And then, and, and I didn't plan it this way. I'm just like, oh, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to call. If they take my call, they do. If not, it's like, hey, John, you quit. Screw it. I would have been fine with that too. Again, I go back to my original premise. It's a radio show. You know, what are we talking about, folks? This is, I'm not on paid leave, you know. I'm a caller. If I want to call back again, I will. If I want to stay retired for the rest of my life, I will. So that's really about the most of that, I would tell you. Got you. Got you. All right. So you said you called in December. Of course, the, you know, talk about the Browns. But do you think if they picked up the Rome show where you are and you could listen to it every day, would you have the urge to call in as a regular? Yeah, no, great question. Um, again, you know, it all, it, all, it all goes back to a matter, matter of logistics, Chris. Where it, it, again, I go back to 30 minutes ago. I had the time to call, you know, because I worked third shift. So to answer your question a lot more succinctly, Probably not. I mean, I'm in sales. You know, I'm chasing my tail. I, you know, I got to be on my game. I mean, I, you know, I need to sell things or I don't make a living. That doesn't afford me the opportunity to be on hold for 30, 40 minutes or whenever Jim decides to make my call. You know, I remember back in the day, even when I was in my heyday, sometimes I was on hold an hour and a half, two hours. You know, it just depends on Jim's mood, you know, what he thought I was going to, well, not what he thought, what he saw on the call screen, what, what I wanted to talk about that is peak his interest. You know, how often, you know, when's the last time I called? Was it good for his show that I was on again? So, in other words, it wasn't like, you know, hey, oh, it's John or it's, you know, it's Trapper or it's, you know, Cablin Asian. We get on in five minutes. No, yeah, sometimes I got on in five minutes and sometimes I waited two and a half hours. Um, so, to your point, no, I think even if Jimmy was on a Hampton Beach radio station, I just don't have, you know, the luxury time-wise in my professional life to do it. And quite honestly, also, Chris, you know, I don't have the, you know, the fervor anymore. You know, it's like it's the quintessential, been there, done that. I mean, you got to remember, we are going back literally 20 years, you know, two decades. I, you know, it's, it's like, you know, do you want to go back to high school and play high school football? No, I, I did. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I'm 56 years old. I, you know, Coach Irvin isn't going to ask me to put the pads on. Uh, you know, and, and, and nor do I want to. I mean, you know, again, I, I refereed high school football. I was on the field in that way. That's the only way I'm ever going to get back on the field again. So, you know, I enjoyed it that way vicariously. So, no, I, I picked my spots. You know, like I said, Jimmy was so gracious to me when I called and spent three or four minutes doing a retrospective of John and Seatown and all that. And it was very nice to hear. So I have a feeling, you know, if I bust, up, bust off one or two calls a year, you know, something happens in Cleveland or something happens and I – piques my interest because I do get off one day in the middle of the week. My work schedule, I have Wednesdays off. So that's why I call on a Wednesday. Okay. So Wednesdays I can call up and I, you know, fold in laundry, you know, clean up my apartment. If they want to put me on hold for two hours, I got the time. That's probably from here on in. That's all I would ever do once in a blue moon. But hopefully, you know, Jimmy will get me. I mean, once he knows it's me, I like to think he'll put me on and I'll say what I got to say. And it does bring back a lot of memories. That's awesome. That is awesome. All right, before we go, shameless plug time. So sure. I need you to brag about yourself. And let me say this. 
Did you ever think about having a podcast or something to get yourself back out there? Because I, I think that would be tremendous. And I think you, you would probably still have access or an old Rolodex, as they might call it. You might have access to some stuff. So is that something that, that could be in the works? I appreciate that, Chris, very much. Again, to be succinct. You're talking to a guy who's actually literally talking to you on a flip-top phone, so I'm kind of like the you know, <laughs> granny. But uh, I, I got buddies that, that have the wherewithal to do a podcast. Because once in a while, people ask me about a podcast. Um, I, 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 my frustrated, uh, you know, the little Jimmy Buffett line, uh, my occupational hazard's been my occupation's just not around. It'll be on my tombstone because I always, I really did. I always wanted to have a radio show because I did fall in love with the medium. And so Rome was one way to do it. I sent in a best of tape to uh, Ray Davies, who I think is still running TAM. Uh, I'm going back to 99. I put together a best of tape of my phone calls from Rome. And Carmen Angelo, who's a buddy of mine, you know, got me an interview with Ray Davies. And I brought him in a cassette, you know, and, um, He's like, I don't know, John. I just, I don't hear it. It's, I don't, I hear, I don't hear that. Whatever. I'm like, yeah, okay, right. What, you know, whatever. I mean, again, he's entitled to his opinion. I'm like, I don't know. I talk to four million people. I you can't give me a. I, I do the midnight shift. You know, give me honest to God. Give me three a.m. to six a.m. I'll take it. So, in fact, if I may, to digress really quickly, the honor I had because Les Levine just passed away, as we all know, and I was on his show on, on you know, he's I was live Cleveland.com. Him and Bud Shaw. Uh, just, December 28th, it was the, after the New York Jets lost, and I, I called in and was on the show, and I went off on Stefanski and the Browns. Well, it was the nicest little honor, and anybody can Google it. Just type in 1228, uh, 20, uh, 20 of Les Levine. You'll, my call's like in the 54th minute. At the end of my call, Bud Shaw, because they're on a split screen. There's Les and there's Bud. Bud, you know, the Cleveland PD writer, Bud literally stands up and claps and goes, great call, John. And Les said, yeah, that was a great call, John. And I, I told oh, my buddy man. Chuck Blooms, I said, you know, I, when I heard Les passed away a couple weeks ago, I'm like, the last call I ever had to Les Levine, he said, great call. So it kind of whetted my appetite again and going, honest to God, Chris, I, I really would. I, I'd do a podcast in a heartbeat. I, I, would, I would work in Dubuque, Iowa, you know, doing sports talk radio. They could pay me, you know, 12 bucks an hour. I'd live in a – I really would. I mean this sincerely. It's kind of like my bucket list. You know, I swam with dolphins in the Bahamas. I really would just look – when I was on a Bruce Drennan show like four or five times with the Citrus Bowl, you know, me and my buddy Kent would, uh, you know, be on a show during the college football season. I felt so at home sitting in that studio at TM behind the microphone, you know, and Bruce asking us questions and us laughing and taking phone calls from people. I'm like – I it was. It was – it was like a date with Sandra Bullock. I was never happier in my life. And I, it, it always has been a frustration for me that, you know, I never got a chance to have my own radio show. It doesn't have to be my own radio show. I'd be somebody's sidekick. I don't care. Just to do it. To get paid. It's one of those jobs. You know, it's the old phrase, if, if you love what you do, it's not really a job. To be behind a microphone and talk sports, pay me whatever because I'm just enjoying it because – it would just be great. So I hope I answered your question. Yes, you did. You did. And I totally believe you'd be a huge success. So I hope, you know, somehow it happens for you. 
Even if I have to fly there and set everything up for you, I hope it happens. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll take you to Hampton Beach. The seafood is great. We'll have Maine lobsters up the yin yang, and uh, you know, oh, no worries. We'll, we'll bust the chowder heads, uh, chops. No worries, buddy. It's great. Seriously, honest, this is honest to God, straight up. I know we're uh, still recording. You, you know, me casa su casa. You ever want to come up to New England? I'll take you to Fenway whenever they start having fans again. Uh, but, you know, it's, it is, it, this is a beautiful part of the country. People ask me, do you ever want to go back to Cleveland? I say no, not in a detriment to Cleveland, because I do love my hometown. But New England is beautiful. I mean, I know great, you know, Lake Erie is one of the Great Lakes. It's a huge body of water. But I literally do live three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. And it's just, you know, I, to walk the beach, to have, I, I'm, I live seven miles from the state of Maine. So I literally could drive across a bridge, and there's the main lobsters waiting for me. I mean, oh. yes, I know Lake Erie perch and walleye, but, I mean, you know, Not just Atlantic Not seafood and just to be on the ocean, it, you know, to go whale watching. It's just my next move, I, I, and I almost did it last year. My next move is I am moving to Florida. I think it's maybe next year. I mean, I'm only 56. I know I'm not that old, but um, I got a buddy who retired. He sold cars with me, and he moved last year. So I got a place to land down there in Punta Gorda. And Donnie Harkins, uh, yeah. class of 83, St. Ed's. Donnie's got Another a place in Naples. He's done very well for himself. Um, Donnie always, uh, you know, I'm with him on Facebook, and Donnie's like, you know, Cars, that's my nickname, Cars. Anytime you want to come back, man, I'll set you up with a job, you know, I'll get you going. And I believe him. So, um, in other words, I got friends down there. So, you know, ne- your next phone call might be John in Punta Gorda, Florida. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Fine with me. I love it. Uh, John Carliak, John from Seatown, please stay in touch. And thank you once again for coming on and sharing your story on the Chris Williams Podcast Hour. It was fantastic, and I can't wait for listeners to actually hear this thing. Thank you. Oh, Chris, seriously, my honor. You know, as you were checking up on me, I was checking, I was listening to your podcast on Facebook. You've done a tremendous job. You really have. You have a lot to be proud of. Um, you're just, you're a professional in every way, shape, or form. You're obviously are a success in your professional life. So you, you wear the mantle of an Edsman rather proudly. And I'm a proud to be an alumnus of the high school that you went to. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, Coach Herbis and everybody, I'm sure, is incredibly proud of you as I am. So job well done, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you again. We'll talk soon. Thank you, buddy. Hey, I'll do this for everybody. War Seatown, War Furball, War Chris Williams podcast. Jimmy, I am out.